Greg Rubel of Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We want to thank you for your interest in God's Word and this message. We pray that God puts it into your heart. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. And we're going to go through lots of verses today, verses 26 to 56. And we continue to outpace the calendar uh, in this Book of Luke series. I know that it's Palm Sunday, but I have a Good Friday message uh, for you. But don't worry if it's bothering you. You know, next Sunday all will be aligned. A week ago, Saturday... Our family was uh, privileged to attend the Hancock County Children's Choir concert, which was uh, themed Let Freedom Ring. And so all of the songs were a patriotic tribute to our country and soldiers. And in between songs, they showed some videos that were testimonies of soldiers um, that had gone to war. And there was like five of them. And every single one of them brought a tear to your eye, sometimes two. And the last one that they showed was about a family, the Hunsberger family. And the video featured mom and dad, and they were holding a picture of their son, Travis. Because uh, Travis was a Green Beret, and he lost his life in Afghanistan. And so we watched the video, and you couldn't help but hear the, you know, the, uh, the respect those parents had for their son, but you could hear the pain of their loss and, and the sacrifice that their son made. And at the end of the concert, I mean, they did, there was no mercy. They brought the Hunsberger family out on the stage with the, with the picture of their son. And so we all stood up, you know, and we applauded. But it just didn't feel like enough to honor the sacrifice, to appreciate it, you know. I want you to watch a, a video here. It's a video clip of a Medal of Honor winner, and a, maybe you'll get to feel some of that, what I just described. Let's watch. See what I'm talking about? I mean, when you connect the dots between Sergeant Atkins giving his life for the freedoms that we are enjoying every single day. It doesn't take very long for you to feel something in you that wants to appreciate that to the fullest extent of the word. And I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, going up to servicemen and thanking them for their service. I'm talking about living in light of the fact that our freedoms have been paid for by the lives of soldiers almost for the entire history of our country. And we should live in light of that. How now shall we live? So today, we are soaking in the greatest sacrifice that was ever made so that people could live. And I've been praying all week long that we would be able to, to fully appreciate what Jesus has gone through for us. The cross is such a constant symbol for us. 
It's something we know all about. It's always there. It always means so much to us, and we don't want to overlook it. We want to appreciate it to the fullest extent of the word. So we're going to start by reading Luke 23, 26 to 31. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid, him the, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Let me pray for us here. Father, as we look at these verses this morning, we ask you that uh, you might give us fresh eyes to see what Jesus went through for us, to understand the sacrifice, to appreciate it, Lord. We want to appreciate it more. And so, Holy Spirit, enlarge our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. It is kind of difficult to comprehend what Jesus went through in these verses. You know, so much of the pain and suffering that he experienced isn't described by Luke. Every step up the hill, every mocking word, every judgmental shout must have been excruciating for him. But none of that would have happened unless Jesus had decided beforehand to pour himself out. And so to begin our appreciation, we want to understand the key ingredient to any sacrifice, and that is selflessness. As Luke begins, his words tell us that Jesus has given up his physical body. He's given it up to God's plan. We're introduced to a man, Simon of Cyrene, who's in from out of town, and he's forced into service by the Roman centurion that's leading Jesus in this shame parade. Up to this point, Jesus has been flogged with a whip that has metal and glass in it to tear through his flesh. He's had a crown of thorns pushed down on his head. Some say two-inch thorns would have pierced his scalp. He would have been able to lose enough blood at this point to not make it. And then he was made to to, uh, carry the crossbar of his cross, which they say could have weighed up to 125 pounds. So, he has already lost all this blood, and the long walk up the hill that he's climbing is too much for his body. Um, enter Simon, probably in, for, in, in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now uh, forced into in, to a share in the shame of Jesus' punishment. His enlistment tells us that Jesus' body is at its end of its physical strength. Jesus also gave up his will. And we saw that back in the garden, you know, with his words. And then here we're seeing it acted out. I was thinking, I wonder if he, every step he took under his breath, he was saying, not my will be done. Not my will be done. We don't know. But we know for certain he gave up his will. 
He also gave up comfort. There's a crowd following him. And women are publicly mourning what is going on. Now you can still find public mourners in the Middle East. It's part of their culture. If you watch a news story about terrorists over there and something bad happens, um, usually you'll see people in the streets publicly lamenting what has gone on to help give comfort to the grieving. It's just part of, of their culture. That's what's going on here. But Jesus didn't receive it. He wasn't thinking of himself. He tells them to mourn for themselves. He knows that in like 40 years, Jerusalem's going to fall. The Roman army is going to surround it and attack it. And he's saying, listen, barren women are going to feel blessed. Normally that was seen as a curse. But they're going to be the ones who feel blessed because of the suffering that's going to come on Jerusalem. And so mourn for yourselves. Weep for yourselves. He's thinking about the suffering of Jerusalem. He said, don't cry for me. But for those women, men who are going to suffer. You know, when you look at the root of any sacrifice, you will find the key ingredient of selflessness. A giving up of yourself, a pouring out of yourself, pouring out your body, giving it, giving it away to others. Your rights, your will, your uh, reputation, whatever it is that you're holding on to, selflessness pours it out. Now, these soldiers who enlist, they leave the comforts of home. And they put themselves in harm's way to protect our freedoms and each other. They're they're showing selflessness. Sergeant Atkins would have never jumped on that bomb had he not poured himself out beforehand, thinking of his men over himself. That's the key ingredient. Selflessness. Jesus is showing us that. Now, as Luke keeps going... Um, Just a few words, he describes the torturous, humiliating death that Jesus suffered. And so to appreciate that, we want to be able to recognize why, the primary motive that Jesus had. So read 32, uh, verses 32 to 38. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. So up to now, uh, we haven't really, no one else has been mentioned in this parade that Jesus is in. He's, he's been, it's all been him going up the hill to this place outside of Jerusalem's walls known as the skull or Golgotha or Calvary. All of those mean the same thing. So when they get to the top, that's when we're told that two others are also with Jesus, two criminals. And Luke says Jesus is crucified between them. And Mark tells us that that's a significant thing, that that fulfills a prophecy back in Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered among the transgressors. And so that tells us something. 
that everything that is happening to Jesus, God has planned it. He's working God's plan. Here is one physician's account of what it must have been like for Jesus. The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock until the 650-yard journey from the fortress to Golgotha is finally completed. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild pain-killing mixture. He refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the crossbar on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown down with his shoulders against the wood. A soldier feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail about five or six inches in length through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly. The crossbar is then lifted in place on the top of a wooden post. The left foot is now pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, again, a nail is driven through the arch of each foot, leaving the knees moderately flexed. Jesus is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating pain shoots along his fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes up himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nails through his feet. Again, there is searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the, in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Jesus experienced hours of limitless pain. Cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where the tissue that was torn from his back is moving up and down against the rough timber of the cross. Then another agony begins. A terrible crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart and suffocate the victim. Limitless pain, asphyxiation, scraping open wounds against rough wood. I mean, just remember, at any moment, Jesus, the Son of God, could have stopped this unimaginable way to die. At any moment, it was in his power. To stop it. But he didn't. Instead, he reveals why he stayed there. Now for him to be able to speak anything while he is hanging there, he would have had to have 
pulled himself up with his arms to be able to exhale and speak. So to say anything while he's hanging there would be excruciatingly painful. What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, it's not the nails holding Jesus to the cross. It's his love. His love for God. And his love for you. And his love for me. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you believe that's the first thing he said when he was hanging there? So as he hangs there, he watches his clothes being gambled away. How humiliating would that be? The Jewish leaders made fun of him. He saved others. Ha! Come on, save yourself if you're the chosen one. His own people. And the soldiers mocking him. Look, if you're a king, save yourself. They're laughing at him. While Jesus is hanging there. Loving them. So to really appreciate what is happening here, we must recognize the love that is holding Jesus to the cross. When it, had, when, when it was in his power to, to save himself. And he didn't. Now Luke continues and he tells of a brief conversation between the condemned men. It's going to help us connect the justice dots and understand why Jesus is going through this nightmare. Verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do, not, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for, of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So one of the criminals there is so full of anger and hate that he endures the excruciating pain it would have taken to say something, to complain to Jesus. Hey, come on, if you say you're the king of the Jews, if you say you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. Get me out of this jam. But the other criminal, he chastises him. Don't you respect God even when you're dying? We are receiving the just punishment for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He is connecting the justice dots. He's getting it. He committed a crime. We don't know what the crime was, but we know he believes that the punishment he's receiving is just. His due reward, he said. When a wrong is done, a person who has done it needs to pay for it in some way to balance the justice scales. So if a person is found guilty in a court of law and the judge says, you know what, I know you're guilty, um, I know you killed somebody, but today I'm feeling forgiven and so we're, I'm just going to let you go. What will we say? That's a terrible judge. 
And in the people that were harmed by that crime, there would be no restitution for them. And they'd leave the courthouse and go out to the media and cry injustice. And there'd be a big outcry in our community. See, God could not be a good and perfect and loving God if he did not require justice for the crimes committed against himself. Now, what are the crimes committed against God? Our sins. Why? Why are our sins an offense to God? I'm little old me, and he's God. Can he get over it? Why do we need justice? Well, when someone commits a crime, the person who, has, who was harmed is not the one who holds that other person accountable. Only the state can do that. And so it is the law that judges a person guilty or innocent, not the victim. So if I went into your house and I stole your big screen TV to put in my house, you would not come to me and say, you need to pay me for that or you need to go to jail. You wouldn't be the one to exact punishment. The law would be. If you rob your neighbor's house, he's not going to come to you and say, hey, you wronged me, fix it. No, it's the higher law. That is that you've broken, and it's what you answer to. In the same way, all moral law comes from God. Every bit of it. And so because we're created in the image of God, His law is stamped on our hearts. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they uh, ate from that forbidden tree. God said, now they're like us, knowing good and evil. That's knowing what's right and wrong. That's no. I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned, the, the law hadn't been written yet to say, hey, this is right and this is wrong. But what did they do? They knew instinctively that they broke the law, that they sinned against God, and they ran and hid from Him. And that's the way it is with us. When we, when we do things that are wrong, we feel that guilt and shame. And we usually do what... Adam and Eve did, and we run and hide from God. See, we all bear the image of God. We were created in His image, and when we sin, it mars that image. We were created to reflect God's glory. That's why we were created. That was the purpose we were created. Just like a mirror reflects our image, we're supposed to reflect God's glory in the world. And when we sin, it's like we put a big old smudge on the mirror. It mars the image, that reflection. And so when we sin, we step outside the purpose we were created, violating God's moral law, and then we are held accountable to Him for the trespass. So the Bible tells us that Romans in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And we know that that's not referring to physical death because we're all here this morning. And uh, don't know when your last trespass was, but you know you might even be able to think of something today that yeah I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that. We're all here, so it's not talking about physical death. Although I do believe a lifestyle of sin contributes to your physical decay. When we sin, we experience a spiritual death, 
And God is showing us in this crucifixion what the punishment of sin against him should be. So that means that every critical word that comes out of our mouth, every lustful thought, every appetite for things of this world, all of these things that you know, come up in our life that we struggle against, they are punishable by a death as torturous as that. In fact, even worse, a spiritual death that lasts forever. Well, that doesn't sound like justice to me. I mean, one, one critical word and I deserve that? Forever? What kind of justice is that? But see, what we're doing there is we're deciding the punishment of the crime based on the severity of the crime. And that's not how it works. The punishment of the crime is determined by who the crime is committed against. So consider an elementary student. He's in class. You know, he's having a bad day. He gets mad, goes up, smacks the teacher across the face. What's going to happen to him? He gets sent home. He'd be there for a few days. Coming back. Say that same elementary student grows up. And he's speeding one day in his car. And a police officer pulls him over. And he gets out of his car. And he goes up and gets mad at the officer. And smacks the officer across the face. What's going to happen to him? Well, he's going to get thrown in jail. We know that. Might even get charged with assault and battery, maybe resisting arrest. Well, suppose that guy gets out of jail and he becomes politically active. He shows up at a rally for our president. The Secret Service slip up. This guy's able to rush the president, goes up, smacks the president across the face. Which we all might like to do, but, you know. What's going to happen to him? He may not live through that. Definitely going to jail for a really long time. What's going on here? It's the same exact crime. But each time, it's committed against a greater and greater authority. See, our crimes are committed against the highest spiritual, eternal authority that there is. And that's why our sins deserve this kind of death, an eternal spiritual death. So to fully appreciate what is happening here, we have to connect the justice dots. See, we belong in this scene, but we don't belong on Jesus' cross. We belong on the criminal's cross. They are the ones receiving the just punishment. And that's what we deserve. We deserve to hang there for our sins. We're guilty like they are. But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. When that criminal asked him to remember him when he entered his kingdom, Jesus was able to say, you're going to be saved, you're going to be in paradise today because he stayed on that cross and paid his penalty. He balanced the justice scales for that criminal. And he's the only one that could do it. He's the only one that ever walked the planet who was sinless. If he had sinned one time, the punishment he was receiving would be for him and not for us. 
So justice is satisfied because Jesus paid our penalty. He took our cross. He took our sin. And without him, none of us could satisfy that justice. Without paying for it with a spiritual eternal death. Can you connect the dots? Can you see what's going on here? We're in an impossible situation. We're meant for hell. If it weren't for Jesus on the cross, that's where we'd be headed. But Isaiah 53, 5 tells us, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now, if you don't connect the justice dots, what you're going to do is you're going to live your life like the other criminal. You're going to complain to God and you're going to rail at Jesus and say, Hey man, you're God, get me out of this jam. And you'll perish. You won't be recognizing that what he did on that cross was for you to balance the scales of justice. So we need to say, to fully appreciate, we need to say, that was my cross. Those were my nails. That was my shame. But by his wounds, I am healed. Now in verses 44 to 49, Luke tells us the impact of Jesus' crucifixion and death. And to really get what's going on here, we've got to seize the spiritual opportunity that's been opened for us. 44 verses 44 to 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the, temp- and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the, pe- all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. So Jesus is on the cross from noon until three. And Luke begins to tell us that the skies were darkened. That's our first clue. That something more than a man is dying on the cross. Verse 45 says, The sun's light failed. When was the last time that happened? 2,000 years ago. Now we might think, well, that was a solar eclipse. You know? But you know, the longest solar eclipse hasn't even happened yet. It's due on July 16th, 2184. It's going to last seven and a half minutes. So we're not seeing a solar eclipse here. When the sun is at its highest point in the sky, its light fails for three hours. Something more is happening. It's more than a man dying on this cross. It is the God-man up there. Now Luke tells us that the temple curtain was torn in two. Now that curtain was what separated the inner room of the temple, which was called the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple. It was four inches thick, 
60 feet high, three times as high as the church. Not uh, impossible for a human being to tear this curtain. Now the Holy of Holies was the room where God chose his presence to dwell on earth with man. And so that was a special room and you couldn't go in that room. And this, this curtain separated man from God's presence. And the high priest went in that room one time a year. And only after being ceremonially cleaned and with a rope tied around his ankle in case God smite him, he didn't get it right and they have to pull him out. Well, God tearing this curtain in two is showing us that he is opening a door for anyone to be able to come into his presence, to live life with him. So when Jesus finally surrendered his life, he cries out, Into your hands I trust my spirit. Those were his last words. When he said that, Matthew tells us that there was a great earthquake and that uh, saints were raised from the dead and many people saw them. And so God's spirit is working and reacting and responding to what Jesus is to his death. He's causing the earth to groan and to give up her dead. And he's causing lives to be changed. Luke mentions the centurion who was there at the crucifixion, that he responded in faith, a pagan. He starts praising God and exclaiming, certainly this was an innocent man. In Matthew, he includes what he was praising. Surely this was the Son of God. Only the Spirit of God working in him could cause him to see that and believe it. Can you see it? Can you see? Jesus has given us an incredible spiritual opportunity. This was more than a man pouring himself out because of love. It was more than someone taking someone else's punishment. This was God himself opening the way back for people to come back to him. And when we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, listen, they're no longer counted against you. They are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? And God forgets them. Because when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. There's nothing more to do except believe. So Jesus' death provides for us eternal life. Eternal life isn't something you receive when you die. It's something you receive when you believe. John chapter 17 verse 1 or verse 3, um, Jesus said in his prayer, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Knowing God. Knowing Jesus, do you know Him? Are you taking advantage of this open door into God's presence? Are you doing life with Him, walking with Jesus, talking to Him all day long, trusting Him for the care over your life and to provide? Are you exercising your spiritual gifts in your life for His glory and the, and the, and the growth of the kingdom? Is the Spirit of God bearing fruit through your life of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Are you experiencing that? Because if you're not, you are wasting your life. 
and Jesus' death. Now there is so much to take in. To appreciate here the selflessness, the love, the justice, the opportunity. Think about those things as you watch the sacrifice. How can we appreciate that? By becoming a living sacrifice. Walking in Jesus' footsteps. As this chapter comes to a close, Luke tells us how Joseph of Arimathea did that. Verses 50 to 56. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. So Joseph of Arimathea, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the trial that Jesus went through. But he he didn't go along with what they decided. He was a dissenter. He's described here as a good and righteous man who was looking for the kingdom of God. That would be a great epitaph, wouldn't it? Joseph goes to Pilate, which I imagine took some risk. And he asked for Jesus' body. He wanted to take care of Jesus' body. He was granted it, so he wrapped it in a linen shroud and took it to his tomb. And he had just had cut out of stone that no one was in. And he laid Jesus' body there. So Joseph is he's showing us some ways that we can be the living sacrifice. He's looking for the kingdom of God. His eyes are on heaven. He's waiting to see God's promises revealed. He's living with expectations to see the mountains laid down and the rough places made smooth. That's where his hope is. That's what his life is about. He's looking for the kingdom of God. That's the same way we want to live. With our eyes on heaven. Eyes on Jesus. Our minds thinking about the things of the Spirit. Our strongest appetites to do God's will and to grow His kingdom. Our hopes clinging to His promises. Our prayers focused on His glory. It's how we want to live, looking for the kingdom of God. How now shall we live since we have seen what was sacrificed for us? Joseph risked. He risked going to Pilate. When was the last time you risked for Jesus? Can you think of it? There's just, there's just no way to honor this sacrifice that's been made for us by staying in our comfort zones. There's just no way. 
you know, going to church sometimes, showing up at our small group even, enjoying everything. I'm telling you, it's not enough. It's like standing, like me standing there, applauding the soldier. It's not enough. We've got to risk. Think of the multitudes of people out there who woke up to just another day. We have been given this knowledge. God has given it to us. He's poured it in us. We can see a cross. It's not just something we tattoo on our arms and be cool. It means something. What can we risk? Maybe a a difficult conversation with someone about Jesus. Can you imagine going up to somebody at your Easter gathering in your family who doesn't go to church or, you know, you're not sure about it? Hey, if you're not sure, ask them if they know Jesus. That is the merciful thing to do. Love them. Risk getting in trouble. Get out of your comfort zone. Now, here's here's a small risk that you can take this week. This is the last Sunday to take Easter invitations. So I want to ask you to take them. Take them all. And just go around your neighborhood and knock on doors and ask, hey, do you have a place to celebrate Easter? I'd like for you to come to church with me next Sunday. Just a small risk. But a great way to do it. I promise you I'll, I'll, I'll share the gospel. I promise you they'll have a chance to believe. I promise you there'll be an opportunity good to go from being dead to being alive. I promise you. Risk something for him. Take him. Jo- Joseph, he gave up his tomb for Jesus. When was the last time you gave something that you owned to him for his work, for his kingdom? When was the last time you gave money that you had saved up for something else? When was the last time you gave him your Saturday? When you were looking forward to something else? What You just think whatever, whatever you own, whatever you have, When was the last time you just gave something to Jesus because of what he's done for us? How now shall we live after the cross? I want to have our worship team come back up. You know, as we talk about just Joseph's actions, you know, there, looking for the kingdom of God, you know, how's that a sacrifice? Well, you know, that phrase, you know, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That's, That's your reputation. Risking for Jesus, giving to Jesus. You know, when you start talking about being a living sacrifice, it doesn't sound very appealing. 
But when you look deeply into the cross and you see what Jesus has gone through, how can we not do it? I, I, I guarantee you that it will hurt. Listen, if it doesn't hurt, whatever you give, if it doesn't hurt, it's not a sacrifice. And I'm here to tell you, it is not enough for what has been given for us. How now shall we live? How now? I got a memory verse for you. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live. It is Jesus Christ who now lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how we should live after the cross. Let's stand. Hey, Gav, would you put that back up there for a second? Let's just read this together. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how we should live. Well, there's so much truth in that song, Lord. We owe all to you. All to you. And stopping here at the cross and looking deeply into the suffering is not ever an easy thing to do, Lord. But it does open our eyes and our hearts to the great amount of love that you poured out. I don't want to get over it. So let's pray, God, that we can live out those words that we just sang. I surrender all to you. This life is not my own. It has been paid for by your blood and sacrifice. And it is by your grace that we are saved. How now should we live? In the power of your spirit. Helping us take the next step. Becoming the selfless, love motivated, justice pouring out. Walking with the living God. Living sacrifice. I know none of us here. After seeing that. Want to waste another second. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your spirit who overcomes us as we submit to him and empowers us to go out and do the things you lay in front of us to do. Lord, as we head into this week, we pray that you'd go before us that you'd lead us to people that we could invite. People that need to hear about Jesus and what he's done. This is good news. Help us be heralds of that this week. And fill your house next week. To celebrate the victory over death. We love you today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said.
Amen.